seated. Well, let's take the next 15 minutes or so together to have our hearts oriented and reminded why it is that we have gathered together this evening to sing these songs and to pray, to uh, hear the word preached, to light candles uh, at the end of the service, to, to give, uh, to help those in need, why we've gathered together to do this. And as I mentioned, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, as I mentioned, this is a prophecy of Christ's birth, who we've gathered to worship and think about this evening, the incarnation, God uniting to himself humanity, truly God and truly man of all unthinkable ways as a baby born of Mary. But what Isaiah does is he alerts us 700 years before Jesus is born who this baby boy is, the one to whom the wise men would bring gifts, the one to whom we would now give gifts to each other because of this person, this son. So again, Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, and listen to what his name is, these titles, these descriptions of both his character and his work, his name shall be called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray one more time before we think about God's word together. Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts to receive and believe all that you would say, to rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure, and that we would, each and every one of us, believe. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, amen. Well, you see there, if you have a Bible open or if your phone is open and on this verse in 9.6, we have four titles given of Jesus. Just with our short time together, we're going to focus on one. Lord willing, this coming Sunday, we'll focus on the other titles. But our attention this evening, on this eve of Christmas, this time that we celebrate the birth of Christ, I want us to focus on the title, the description of Jesus, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 9, 6, God gives the promise of a regal son. Don't miss that. Don't miss the emphasis that he is the prince of peace. This prince will have a kingdom, and this kingdom, the text tells us, will have no end, both in time and in space, meaning Jesus' rule and his reign will occur forever, and that it will rule over all the peoples of the earth, such that there'll be one day, there'll be one government and it will be Christ. And the reign and rule of this prince will be of peace. Peace describes the prince's throne. Not just his throne, but his kingdom. And not just his kingdom, but the subjects of his kingdom, his people. But most importantly, peace describes the prince himself. 
And that's what we need to think about together. This description of Jesus as the Prince of Peace and what he will accomplish. Now, if we were to take time and go through the room and ask, well, how would you define peace? You may define it many different ways, but what our current concern should be is how does the Bible define peace? And how do we get this peace? And from whom do we get it? Or from where do we get it? How does the Bible use this word peace to describe the Prince of Peace, Jesus? Well, the Bible uses the word peace, which in Hebrew, maybe you've heard it, is shalom. The Bible uses the word peace in two main ways, which are very important for you to think through as you relate to Jesus and think about Jesus and think about this, this Christmas Eve and tomorrow Christmas. One way the Bible uses the word shalom or peace is in the context of the cessation of war and hostility. It's the ceasing of conflict. So it would be the opposite of war. You have peace. That is one way the Bible describes it. But there's another way the Bible describes shalom, peace, that is more abstract. And it's related to your personhood, your constitution as a human being. Again, it's abstract, but it carries the idea of wholeness or completeness, of well-being. So the opposite would be being an incomplete person or internally not well-being. So if we were to marshal together all the different passages in the Bible that survey and use this word shalom or peace, it relates to wholeness. And you would discover the wholeness the Bible talks about is not just physical health, but it's a wholeness of the inner person, your mental faculties, your emotions, your, your feelings and more. And following that, the Bible describes peace as a type of wholeness of humanity. That's not just you, but it's your relationship to other whole people. And in relating to other whole people, it portrays for us a society of what society is meant to be. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So we have these two meanings before us in Scripture, cessation of war and wholeness of personhood in relationship to other whole people, creating a whole society. Now that's a beautiful picture. If you take time to think about it, what would it look like to have a utopia, as it were? What would it look like to be a whole person? This beautiful reality painted by biblical shalom, though, is marred by your present experience in the world and your observation of the world around us. Why? You hear this ideal given in scripture of what peace is, then we look at the newspaper, you look at the news, you look at your feed, you look around, you even look inside, and you see that the biblical description of peace is not what you experience. Why is it this way? Because when we look out in the world, we see nothing but strife. There's political whiplash, rage-inducing news feeds that paint everything in this world as an existential threat to human flourishing, well-being, and life itself. Nations rattle sabers against nations, and it seems that no matter where you turn, there are threats to life on every side. It looks like there is no peace, because there isn't. And then you turn it on yourself. Myself, yourself. If we look internally, if we're lucid, if we're clear-eyed, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we do not find that biblical idyllic picture of wholeness within, both with our intellect and our emotions and the way we interpret things. No, what we find is that we, all of us, don't always do the things that we want to do. We are not yet what we want to be. We make mistakes. We can be mistaken. We can be confused and frustrated. Even with ourselves, we have inner turmoil. There is a reason why our culture has terms regarding psychoses and more. If we're honest, we find ourselves as a major problem in our own relationships. Let me repeat that. If we are honest with ourselves, we discover that we ourselves are a major problem in our own relationships. So both the world around us, nation against nation, and even in us, and as we relate to others, this biblical portrait of peace we don't possess. And it seems that the advancement of humanity across millennia has not served to create utopia. No matter how advanced we think we are, instead, we have just become more sophisticated at usurping the very prospect of utopia. We sabotage it ourselves. And we know the reason why this is. We know why that we don't have peace on earth, nor people don't have peace internally. We know why, because the Bible tells us so. And it's this. There is an even worse reality than the external strife we see outside of us and the internal strife we experience within us. The greatest lack of peace is not in the world or inside of myself. No, the reason there's problems in the world is because we do not have peace with God. And lack of vertical peace with God creates horizontal lack of peace everywhere else. There is no peace on earth without first having peace with the triune God. And peace with God is not something that we can achieve ourselves. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much we team up, you can sum up all of humanity, and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to manufacture our own peace with God. There is only one way to peace with God, only one way, it's exclusive, and the one way to peace with God is through the Prince of Peace, as spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What do I mean? What I mean is that the Bible tells us that each of our imperfections, which are sins, is a personal declaration of war against God. I wonder if perhaps you are maybe infamiliar with the, not familiar with the Bible or you haven't spent much time in church. Friend, I want you to understand the portrait the Bible paints. It gives us many definitions of sin, but one definition of sin in the Bible is a personal, willful declaration of war against God. It's my kingdom declaring war against God's kingdom. That is me and you attempting a coup on our part to establish a rival kingdom over and against God's kingdom, the Prince of Peace. Well, how can I say that? You see, every sin that we commit against others is ultimately and always a sin against God himself. So no one can claim innocence. How can I say that? 
Well, if you think through what the Bible says, if you've ever lied, you've sinned, even a white lie. If you've ever disobeyed your parents in the past or currently, you've sinned. If you've cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, been selfish, you see, no one has ever been indifferent in this world towards God or other human beings. Our lack of wholeness in ourselves leads to creating a lack of wholeness in others because we sin against others. No one can claim that they are innocent before God and faultless in this world. And collectively, to our folly and shame, we have made ourselves enemies of God. To which you might say, no, I haven't. To which Jesus says, yes, you have. On God's terms and God's definition, regardless of what we think and feel, is what God says is true. Even our indifference to him, even our indifference to that statement is itself sin against God. And my sin and your sin and humanity's sin, when you go downstream of our sins against God, creates fractures in our relationships and the, the war that we see in our society as a whole. And here's the thing. We don't deserve peace with God. We don't deserve it. Just one sin is a cosmic eternal crime against a cosmic eternally good and holy God. So we don't deserve peace with God. We deserve his retributive justice. That's what we deserve. But how does God respond? God responds with Christmas Eve. God responds, maybe not like you and I would if we were in his place. We might think that we should justly crush rebels and terrorists to the kingdom of God. But what does God do? Rather than justly crushing you and I, no, God justly crushes the Prince of Peace in our place. You see, from before time, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, planned the good news gospel of our salvation for his glory. God planned to overcome our rebellion and change us rebels into welcomed daughters and sons. That's the good news of Christmas Eve. And God planned to overcome our rebellion as rebels and change us from rebels into daughters and sons by giving the gift of his son, Jesus. The triune God planned from all time that the Prince of Peace would take on human flesh in our place as a baby of all things to live as one of us yet without sin, to suffer and die what was due to us. Jesus suffered for your cosmic crimes, my cosmic crimes, and Jesus rose for our justification. And that's a big Bible word and a way that we like to define that around here is when you hear the word justification, when Jesus lived, died, and rose, when he rose and when we believe in his death and resurrection in our place, it's just if I'd lived Christ's life. That is the father credits to your whole life as if you had lived what Jesus lived. And it's also just if I'd never sinned. So it's not just a blank slate. It's all of Jesus' goodness credited to you. And that's what Christmas Eve tells us with the birth of, the, of God the Son born in our place. And Jesus lived in our place, died in our place, rose in our place because he's the Prince of Peace 
who came on a mission of peace to rescue and save people like you and me. That we could have peace with God forever. Jesus is our peace. He is our shalom. It's not something that he just uh, gives. It's what he is in himself. So God shows his love for us. And that while we, were st- while we are still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peace with God was God's plan, not ours. Peace with God was God's work, not ours. And because we have peace with God vertically, Ephesians 2 tells us that it trickles down horizontally that now all those in Christ can now have peace with one another regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your poverty, your status or station in life. In Jesus Christ, we are made a new humanity. And it pleases God to gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to with one voice glorify this Prince of Peace together. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The offended one, God, has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. The righteous one has made us righteous. He has brought us from unrighteousness to righteousness in himself. You see, you can have peace with God tonight, even now. And for many of us who are followers of Christ, we need to be reminded, especially in this year and in this season and in the turmoil of this world, is that there is peace. We do have it in Christ. Peace with God in Christ has terms that you either receive or reject. You either are going to agree with God by his grace through faith in Jesus. You see, there's one thing required of you in this transaction on God's terms. It's believe. It's believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who died and rose in your place. And so that it's it's an invitation for us to lay down our arms to enter the kingdom of peace and now live in this world as ambassadors of Christ's reconciling peace to this world, in this world. Jesus' reconciling peace is the only answer to all the supposed solutions that are on the airwaves of our culture. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ creates that new humanity. So as you consider this evening, this Christmas Eve, as you consider your life, I ask you this question. Because I think the Bible asks us this question. Do you truly have peace with God through Christ tonight? If you cannot, without a doubt, say that you have that, the King of Glory, the Prince of Peace, is issuing a summons to you tonight to turn from your sins and to believe in Jesus. Will you do that? Won't you do that? This one who gave himself for you is asking you to give yourself to him. Have you truly turned from your ways and turned to God? God has set the terms. Will you accept them? Tonight is the summons to repent, to believe. Friend, believe. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is a reminder. For all the fear and anxiety that this world will cultivate and has more to cultivate, 
we cannot forget that this Prince of Peace is seated easily on his throne right now. Jesus Christ is relaxed as he reigns over the cosmos. He is not anxious. And this Prince of Peace, who is the mighty God, it's on Sunday, this mighty God, Prince of Peace, is the one who reminds us that we are also ambassadors of peace, peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, and there's a reminder tonight that when we give gifts and enjoy our family, when we get frustrated and we have an argument tomorrow, and all that's going to unfold tomorrow in this Christmas season, remembering that the Prince of Peace is enthroned, his spirit is in us, he gives us that peace, and it's a reminder that we can worship and glorify God, who is a humble Savior. Amen? Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we sing some more songs.